Let us pray. Father God, as we are before your word this morning, help it to come alive to us through the power of the Spirit. Give us ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I really intended to be able to get through all the verses finally this week. Um, and so much so that I confidently put that quote in the front of your bulletin. And, and the quote has a nice sentiment to it, but I was intending to express the fact that even as nice as that quote is in the sense of how it talks about the fact that God is presently with us in the name I am, there's actually more to that statement of I am. But I give this at the very beginning of the sermon because I, at best, am only going to get to verse 12, not to verse 14. And so now there's a, there's a quote in the front of the bulletin I'm not even going to mention. So let us get into our passage today. Now, when it comes to this passage, we've been in uh, week after week. I, I've fielded a really good question last week. Maybe it was by somebody who's not intimidated by me. Uh, but it was of looking at this text and trying to apprehend what is going on in this passage when it comes to this, this manifestation of God. In verse 2, it seems that an angel has come, an angel in the, the presence in, in a fire, in a, in a brambling bush. What, what's going on? And yet then in verse 4, the, the bush is, from the bush is coming a voice that is attributed to God. What is going on here? And it's a good question. And, and really, today's uh, sermon and what we'll focus on in this passage today is the nature of God's coming in this text. But it's a good question because of the fact that I got to catch up to my, my notes here. I had a moment there. Uh, that actually, Jewish commentaries and and other people will struggle, other people who read this passage will struggle to figure out what is going on here. I've, I've read several Jewish commentaries, really even in preparing for this uh, sermon series through Exodus, and, and even the Jews don't know what to make of it. And in that reality, in that tension of not understanding what to make of what's going on and God's appearing before Moses— it, it kind of gives us an opportunity for us as Christians to appreciate the uniqueness of our faith. Because we kind of rush right ahead and go, yeah, well, God comes to save his people. God comes to be with his people. That's what we believe. That's what we confess, that God came in flesh. And so it's not too hard to make that connection to, oh, yes, God manifested himself in a bush, in a and a burning, brambling bush, and, and we kind of can be sympathetic that Moses is struggling to describe what he was allowed to see, and yet we have a vague idea, because of the coming of Christ, what that looks like. But this is what I want us to think upon. I was just talking this week 
with a hospital chaplain. And in order to protect HIPAA laws, I'll call this hospital chaplain my brother in the faith. Um, but my brother, he, he called me and he was talking about this interaction that he's had with a Buddhist over the course of several weeks. And the Buddhist um, called on a hospital chaplain because they realize they're, they're soon to be into death. They're soon to, to go into death and they are troubled. They're spiritually troubled. You know, a Buddhist who's, who's kind of taught to, to kind of be in the spiritual neutrality of it all, to not, not, not uh, basically get, get too hot and bothered by the highs and lows of life, isn't really uh, approaching their death all that wonderfully. And so they said to the hospital, sure, I'll, I'll take a chaplain. And my brother shows up. And he listens for a little while. Again, brother in the Lord. Um, he listens for a little while. And he says, hmm, it sounds like you desire a personal God, but Buddhism will never give you a personal God. Buddhism will never give you a God that will come for you. It has no concept, no idea of such a God. And that's actually why I'm a Christian. Because that's what Christianity professes. And this Buddhist looked at him and he said, can I have a Bible? And in reading that Bible and, and the meetings soon to come after that, the person now has professed belief in the Lord. This uniqueness of the fact that God came for you. And now the person was reaching out to my brother and said, will you, will you be there when I die? And my brother gave his cell phone number and, and all his contact, and he hopes to be there when this man dies. You can pray for that. I think it's a good thing to pray for. But he also reminded him, remember, you have the presence of God with you now. And so you're not alone, even if I, even if I can't make it, you're not alone. That is something that we need to capture really right here at the beginning of the uniqueness of this reality. Moses is struggling in one sense, and, and it's with those with eyes that will not see the God who comes, with kind of a scales over their eyes in one sense. You're going to have a hard time kind of comprehending what Moses is actually saying. And yet, at the core of our faith, at the core of our faith, which began to be recorded at the time of Moses, written down for us, is a God who comes for us. As we've said many a time so far in our series, this is the first advent of the Lord. And there is another thing I'd like you to see, and I. this is one of those times where I'm going to tell you what it says in the Hebrew, but I actually understand and even respect why the translators do not put this word in verse 2. 
I'm going to kind of to insert even more into the mystery of this advent of the Lord here. Moses inserts a word in verse 2 that they translate in the ESV, I believe, as flame. That word throughout the Old Testament, throughout people who have read Moses writing later, throughout the prophets, is the word for passion. So not only is this a burning bush, an angelic messenger-like being who is in this bramble bush that will not be consumed, but he, in his coming, he comes with passion, with this fiery passion. What are you passionate about? What are the things that make you passionate in this world? It's a good question to, to be asking ourselves rather regularly. I, 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 you know, idols, idols come up constantly. For about a year and a half, I was really addicted to chess. Really, did. I could still beat you, Sean. I could still beat you. We're going to have to play chess. But I was still, you know, I was really addicted to chess. I was playing a lot of chess. And then I was just realizing I don't need to be passionate about chess. I don't need to, to be passionate about these things. We can get passionate about politics. We can get passionate about the state of the world. We can get passionate about so many things. Here is the presence of God. And he comes to his people, his people who have been subjugated to slavery, his people who have been subjugated to hardship, and he comes in passion, and his passion is so that people might experience the glory of God and come into his presence and worship. The prophets actually talk about this. Isaiah is a good example of this. He, he constantly talks about it in his book, and I, it's fresh on my mind because I was in Isaiah with the high school class this week. But he talks about it as the zeal of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord. The Lord is passionate about his glory, and he's passionate about the people he has called into receiving his glory. And so we don't want to downplay the fact that this Advent is because God is passionately desiring to show his love for his people. But we're also a people in Lent, right? We're in, in the season of Lent. And what is Lent if not a marching toward the great passion of all passion, the passion itself, where, where God laid down his life for us, that he showed the depths of his love for both the Father and for us by extension calling us to be his people through his passionate, sacrificial love for his bride. And so it's worthy of remarking the fact that the first advent right here at the beginning talks about the passion in which the Lord is coming to Moses with. And we also see, starting in verse 7, some of what the Lord says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. There is a lot there. First off, can I point something out because of the clown world we live in? 
Let me look at this passage pretending to be a modern critic. The kind that gets speaking engagements at Ivy League schools and invitations to the Met Gala and gets to be on the mainstream news networks. How dare God say he knows the sufferings of his people? Isn't that cultural appropriation? Shouldn't God know better than to dare God explain to us what it's actually like to be a slave? How does a passionate, angelic, burning bramblebush of a God know my feelings? Now, the Christian, of course, we are to say, oh, you fool. The God we are in the image of came to us in Christ in the form of man, and he knows more about suffering, more about uh, pain and hardship than we ever dare know. We never will know the fullness of the extent of the agonies of hell that were allowed to be poured out on, upon him so that it would not be poured out upon us. And that's true, but let's even stay here for a moment. Because this is a cultural lie that can still do a lot of danger in the Christian church, even if we, we, we approach it with trepidation. I, I would ask you to completely turn from it. If we blend the cultural thought of knowing means having to have experienced something yourself, Christ hasn't been a woman. Does he know then the sufferings, the unique sufferings of being a woman? Now, he's created woman, but if you go down this road, this worldly idea, this worldly philosophy, this cultural pit of hell, you're going to have to say no. And this tactic is being successfully wielded and used, and it's been, frankly, used for quite some time in American politics, probably best seen in abortion, but now being extended into gender ideas and, and, and reparation kind of ideas and all sorts of ideas, you can't dare question any of our philosophies because you don't know what it's like. And this is a moment where the faithful need to rely on the word, word of God, the word of God, which is truth, the word of God, which tells us he knows, and his word is truth, and he gives us that which is good and pleasing and right before the eyes of the Lord. It's been an effective tool. And if you've bought into some of the garbage of, use, of people using that tool, Understand you're at conflict with the God who comes in his advent here in Moses and says, I know the sufferings of my people. You are not trusting him in his word. Also with the word know here in verse 7. It's so often used in the Bible as an intimate marriage, um, uh, a, no, a marital-like knowing. And so that also mirrors that passionate word of verse 2. 
And a good marriage, of course, is one is often one where a husband and a wife might, in their complementing one another, further draw out and refine the other in the highs and lows of life. And yet sometimes that takes suffering. And sometimes that takes hardship. And sometimes that takes struggle. And when we remember that, we actually can appreciate what our marriage to God is like. We talked a little bit about last time about how we're dust that has been molded by God. There's a further reality to that. We are, a, we are in one sense, the clay jar God is still actively molding in being wedded to us. And sometimes it hurts because God pushes upon parts of our lives. We say, God, we don't want you to push upon that. We don't want to suffer in that way. We don't want to struggle in that way. Uh, we don't want to be challenged in that way. We don't want to give that idol up in order to be more faithful to you. And yet he's the God who knows. He's the God who knows so much. He told Abraham, as we've said many a times back in Genesis 15, that this time would come this time of enslavement and bondage of his people. And yet, through that time, he knew that it would produce a, a greater fruitfulness that his true people could be blessed by. I was thinking on how to relay this, and I thought again of that storm, of that tornado. And, and there's a healthy number here in this church that weren't a part of this church at the time of that tornado. You don't necessarily, you're not aware of uh, the trees, the, the thousands in the region, the, the hundreds nearby this property that fell. And hard times and suffering, it produces hard storms, it produces trees that fall. But there is something you could see in the storm if you were to go outside today. And to look out, for instance, into that grove. You could see the trees that withstood tornado-like winds. That the roots held. That the roots did not give in and give way. And there would be a unique beauty in beholding those trees that survived that experience. There's a unique character and quality, especially to the ones that are thriving. Occasionally, every year, it's sort of like, should that one get cut down? Probably. But there are some that are still thriving. And there's a unique beauty in that. And I know Bruce was talking about suffering in Sunday school. We need to appreciate the fact that suffering brings out qualities in our marital relationship with the Lord that benefit us in the long run, that give us deeper roots, that allow us to be a more faithful people. In one sense, you know, I have a vocation. What's my vocation? I'm a pastor. My wife knew. That's good. I don't know about the rest of you, but my wife knew, so that's okay. That's a good place to start. The rest of you, I'm a pastor. That's, my, that's one of my vocations. I have other vocations, too. You know a vocation we all have? Entering into suffering as people of God. That's a universal vocation. If you are a Christian, you've, you've committed yourself to a lifetime of enduring suffering. 
Don't believe me? Here's some apostles. Here's the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Don't like what Peter says? Here's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. All right, Paul and Peter don't like either of them. Let's go to James, the brother of the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's add to this the apostle John in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And here is the Apostle Matthew recording the words of Jesus in his gospel at the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I haven't even touched on the Old Testament. There'd be plenty of prophets I can go to. Suffering is part of the deal. And suffering is a part of our growth and maturity in the Christian life. We are refined in suffering. We are refined in those storms, those great storms Wherefore, the Christian, the Lord displays the power of the deeper root systems that hold them together. And so as we read verse 8, if you came here today worried, if you're disoriented about the state of the world, the kinds of things we're seeing, yes, there, there might be a large storm that we, on the horizon and one that maybe we're starting to endure. Passages like the one we read a few weeks ago in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, make clear that the storm of God's judgment seems to have already begun to uh, envelop our land that we live in. And you know what? That might mean that certain things that you loved and appreciated before this storm, they're brought down. They're destroyed. And yet remember in that storm that God uses that suffering in order to continue molding us, to form us into his image. But also we can see in verse 8 that in the midst of this suffering, he comes down to us in order to deliver us from the suffering. Actually, I love how God actually lists this in verse 8. He says that he will deliver his people from, notice he says the Egyptians. And then after the nation of Egypt, God says, Yes, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, what's right after that? There are six other nations that Israel is going to have to contend with. It's a little bit like this, to be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but to get the point. Let's say I'm really struggling with something now. 
And I'm, I'm going, God, I don't know. I, I can't bear this. I can't. I need you to help me. I need you to come to me. And he goes, Kevin, don't worry. I've, I've already come to you in this present suffering and for the car accident that you're going to be in and down the road and for that, that quick surgery, you know, that you need uh, at, at the drop of a hat. Oh, and by the way, uh, I, I'm going to also be there when um, you have that financial struggle and and you're just going, wait, what? What? I, I was just asking about the Egyptian. No, I was just asking about this thing. But no, God is the God who is making clear, I'm going to be with you the whole time. I'm a God that's seen you. I'm a God that's heard you. I'm a God that knows you. I'm a God that remembers you. Those were the verses, the things that we remembered at the end of chapter two, if you look at these verses of what God's saying here in chapter three, he's really repeating those things. But the difference is the difference between chapter two and chapter three is this. God's now come down for us. He's come down to be in our presence, to be in the midst of his people in order to save his people from all the threats that would undo them. Whether we're talking about seven nations we're talking about other threats, the deepest being our struggle with sin. And so God then commissions Moses. Moses, I'm going to send you out to do this. And what are the first three words of his response? Cruel am I. Now, we're going to look more fully at Moses has a lot of protests that he puts before God. We're going to deal with that in a future sermon. But we're going to talk about those first three. Who am I? That's actually a good question. Now, this will be hard to hear for some people because we live in an America that you know, we all have our social media outlets where we can express our sales and, and all this stuff. And, and we're all unique as rainbows or sort of things. And, and we all are entitled to our opinion. And anytime anything goes on in the world, we need to pontificate through social media. But there is a sense in which I feel this profoundly as a pastor at times. And it sounds despairing. Who am I? The answer is nobody. And Moses was a nobody. He really was a nobody at this point in his own strength. He's a nobody. He's an absolute nobody. I'm a nobody. And I, and I was trying to, I'm going to, I'm going to make it sound easier a little in a minute, but I want you to sit in this for a little while. I say this as nice as possible. You're a nobody too. Without God, you're nobody. Who are you to question God? Who are you to go for God? Who are you to speak for God? You're nobody. I'm a nobody. But Moses was asking the wrong question. The right question is, whose am I? Whose am I? Well, I'm the Lord's. Lord has come down for me. Lord has come to save me. 
The Lord has, he knows me, he remembers me, he cares about me, he loves me. He's been bearing my afflictions with me. He has a marital-like love and passion for me. He knows me. And once I know whose I am, then, it's then, I have the right kind of idea of why, and you have the right kind of idea, of why we go forth and why we should do the things we're called to do, which are hard things at times, which are things that are will sometimes lead to great deals of suffering. It's not because who you are outside of God. The most exhausted people I ever see are people who are trying to earn the approval of others. It's exhausting. And it's a much better way, an infinitely better way. And the way the Christian is supposed to go is to remember whose they are. You are the Lord's. And so therefore you can go and you can endure the suffering. You can endure the hard moments. You can endure the pains. You can endure those things in life you don't believe at first that you have the strength for because of whose you are, because he goes with you, because he's known the whole time. He's been alongside of you. That is the good God we worship. That is the truth of the matter. That is the good news. We are a God who has always known each and every situation, all that we need rescue for. When we're praying for this thing, he's already, in one sense, saying, don't worry, I have the next six lined up as well. And that's the good news. And the best way to remember whose we are is by looking to that cross, looking to that mountain of all mountains where our Lord and Savior went upon that mountain and bore the suffering that we deserve to bear for the wrath and judgment that we deserved to have. And he did it to show his passionate-like love for us. And so that we might not just go out into the world and, and, and just live however we want to live, carpe diem, but that we might live with him, that we might desire to be, enjoy his abiding presence, and that we might also share with others the good news of the Lord who has come down to save us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, throughout the Scriptures, you show your passionate love for your people. And we dismiss these things too often and too quickly. As if we cannot trust your word. As if we have no appreciation for the fact that even 
as we look to the scriptures themselves, they culminate in a wonderful feast, a wedding supper of the Lamb, which kicks off our heavenly reality. We are people who forget you are the God who declared to us, I go to prepare a place for you. That you are engaged with us in this world. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember that when the storms come, when suffering comes, that you are with us. That you come alongside of us. That you came down from heaven for us and for our sake and for our salvation. And when we sin, Lord, help us to look to the cross, to look to your love, and to be shaped once more by the goodness of your grace. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.